This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Support Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 125th edition of the program. Today is January 4th, and this is our very first episode of 2018. But of course, as usual, before we get into the news stories, I want to take a moment to thank all of the newest individuals that signed up to contribute to us either through Patreon or PayPal, or maybe they just submitted a one-time donation through PayPal. And we appreciate your generosity so much. At the end of the show, I will be naming each and every single one of you and thanking you each personally just to show you how much that I appreciate you. And if you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. So on today's episode, first, I'll give you guys an overview of all of the damage President Donald Trump caused in his first year as president. Also, Bernie Sanders issued a warning to Republicans. Additionally, I'll tell you why Howard Dean is a fake friend to millennials. Jill Stein is the newest target of the MIC resistance. I'll tell you about the FCC's new plan to ruin the internet even more and how states are defying the FCC by passing their own net neutrality laws. And we'll also talk about failed presidential candidates that just refuse to retire. And finally, on this episode, I'll talk with comedian Ron Placone about why progressives should feel optimistic about 2018 in spite of all of the bullshit that we are having to put up with now dealing with Republicans in control of all three branches of government. So all of these topics will be discussed on today's show. Let's go ahead and jump right in. So as you all know, we are approaching the one-year anniversary of President Donald Trump. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this year with a reality TV show star as the president was a disaster. Nor do I think it's very controversial to say something like that at this point. And this is because Donald Trump is even beginning to bleed support among his core followers, which I didn't necessarily think would happen this quickly. And large part of the reason why I think this is happening is because clearly he's abandoned the economic populist rhetoric he was using on the campaign trail. Because surprise, surprise, a billionaire doesn't give a shit about the poor. In fact, he literally congratulated all of his rich friends at Mar-a-Lago after they passed the tax reform bill, telling them you all just got a lot richer. So he is not the man of the people like he champion himself as when he was running for president um and i think his own followers are beginning to wake up and realize that yeah donald trump is a fraud he's been a fraud his whole life he was a fraudulent businessman and now he's a fraudulent president because he's a shady person now if that wasn't enough if donald trump just basically doing things that help his rich friends wasn't enough and then rubbing it in our faces he's already starting off 2018 by threatening to nuke north korea via twitter of course because how else do you threaten other countries you do it through twitter saying north korean leader kim jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime 
please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is a much bigger and more powerful one than his, and my button works. And this tweet comes just months after I naively posted a video stating how he seemed to have toned down his bombastic rhetoric towards North Korea, at least while he was on his trip to Asia. So, uh, thanks Trump. I guess that's what happens when you try to give him a chance on something. You just, you can't give him the benefit of the doubt. So this is what we've been dealing with now for a year. We have an orange man baby as the president of the United States, and he's done a lot of damage to the country. But before I get to the specific policies he's enacted that have been harmful, first, when it comes to the lies he's told, a quantitative analysis by the Washington Post demonstrates that President Trump has made 1,950 false or misleading claims during his first year as president, averaging 5.6 lies per day. And at this rate, he's set to actually surpass 2,000 total lies by the time he officially crosses the one-year mark. Now, even though we all know Donald Trump is a compulsive liar and he's constantly contradicting himself and fabricating stories, even I'm a little bit surprised by this because he is lying constantly on a daily basis and that's not healthy for democracy. So since Donald Trump clearly can't tell the truth or he's incapable of telling the truth my question to donald trump is very simple why the fuck you lying why, why you always lying why? oh my god stop fucking lying now of course donald trump obviously did more than lie through his teeth during his first year as the president he also codified policies into law that are incredibly harmful that are destructive not just to the united states but the world. So in no particular order, he signed an executive order permitting and expediting the construction of the Keystone XL and Dakota Access pipelines. He signed a bill into law that allows internet service providers to sell our online information and data to third parties without our consent. He appointed Ajit Pai to the FCC, who quickly repealed net neutrality. He unilaterally decided to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. He killed DACA. He tried to institute a ban on transgender people serving in the military. He sat idly by as the Children's Health Insurance Program expired, and he did nothing. He froze and repealed a lot of Obama-era regulations that protect us from pollution and unsafe food. He passed a tax reform plan that raised taxes on the poor and cut taxes on the rich. He managed to dismantle the Affordable Care Act through an executive order and his tax legislation, which will result in thousands, if not millions of people, losing coverage. He signed an arbitrary executive order demanding that two regulations be killed every time a new one is passed. He allowed Arctic drilling to continue. He's allowing coal companies to dump debris in streams and rivers again. He moved to sever diplomatic ties Obama was building between the United States and Cuba. He ramped up the United States' illegal drone war with a 400% increase in drone strikes in comparison with his predecessor. And in fact, that number is actually higher than 400%. He authorized a military raid on dubious intelligence that led to the death of 30 civilians, including 10 women and children. And this includes Nora Alala 
Malaki. He illegally and unconstitutionally bombed a Syrian airfield. He directly damaged long-standing relationships with U.S. allies by acting like a baby. This includes him hanging up the phone on Australia's prime minister, and he also picked a fight with the mayor of London on Twitter. He praised and befriended Rodrigo Duterte, president of the Philippines, in spite of Duterte's extrajudicial killings of people accused of either dealing or using drugs. He lifted the Cardin Luger rule under Dodd-Frank that curtails corruption of the oil and gas industry. They can now be less transparent. He obviously escalated tensions with North Korea to a terrifying new level. He potentially obstructed justice by firing the FBI director that was investigating him, James Comey. He also refused to condemn the neo-Nazi march in Charlottesville and even defended its participants. He escalated tensions with Russia and notified Vladimir Putin almost immediately after he was elected that the United States would no longer be party to an Obama-era treaty that caps the nuclear stockpiles of both the U.S. and Russia. So effectively, he did something that will facilitate an increase of nuclear weapons that both countries have. He also signed an executive order almost immediately that directed federal agencies to step up deportation of undocumented immigrants. He stacked his cabinet with more billionaires than any other president in U.S. history. He endorsed a pedophile for the U.S. Senate, Roy Moore. Now, he also implemented a Muslim ban, even though he's no longer referring to it as a Muslim ban, since he quickly realized that a Muslim ban itself is unconstitutional. But this ban applies to countries whose citizens did not attack us for the most part. He reinstituted the global gag order on abortion that stops federal dollars from going to international organizations that provide abortions or information about abortions. He increased our already bloated military budget. He expanded and extended the war in Afghanistan. He recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, thus legitimizing their illegal occupation of Palestine and causing chaos in the region. He approved the massive weapons deal in Saudi Arabia, a regime that's currently committing war crimes and genocide in Yemen. He defended torture on national television, which not only violates the U.S. Constitution, but international law. He signed an executive order that makes Dodd-Frank even more toothless than it already was. He loosened regulations on private equity firms and made it easier for them to scam Americans and essentially screw people out of retirement. He completely ignored Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria devastated the island and he's currently in violation of the emoluments clause of the constitution because his businesses still pose a conflict of interest so even though he placed his businesses in a blind trust that's being controlled by his sons he still has the authority to regain control of his businesses at any point in time, which means that he's still in control. That's a conflict of interest, and that is a violation of the Emoluments Clause of the U.S. Constitution, and he's been in violation of it since he was sworn in. Now, that's not an exhaustive list. That's not every single negative thing that Donald Trump did, and yes, there were some positive things that he did. He did withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, even though later on his trip to Asia, he was lobbying for something that looked just like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He took the worst elements of the TPP and put it into different trade agreements that were bilateral with other Asian countries. Uh, another thing that he did, which can be seen as good, of course, is he didn't repeal the Obama-era regulation that bars discrimination against LG LGBT people from companies with federal contracts. So I don't even know if he deserves credit for something that he didn't undo. He just didn't touch that. But I mean, if you, if you really want to look for something to give him credit for, I guess that's really the only thing that we can give him credit for.
But even though this all sounds terrible, Scott Limo of the LA Times reminds us that a lot of the damage Donald Trump caused can, in fact, still be undone. And that's true. We can get a new president who will reappoint a new FCC commissioner to overturn that net neutrality decision if courts don't already strike it down. We can get a new president to ensure that the U.S. does in fact become a signatory to the Paris Climate Accord again. I'm not telling you about all of the negative things that Donald Trump is doing to demoralize you. I'm trying to encourage you to get involved and resist him and not resist him in the tepid way that neoliberal Democrats like to resist him. I'm encouraging you to run for office, take to the streets and protest, write letters to members of Congress, email them, tweet at them. I want you to get involved because yes, we can undo these things, but we can stop Donald Trump from doing even worse things if we constantly keep pressure on him. So, yes, there's a lot of damage. Um, we're going to have to undo all of this. Most of it will be undoable, but some of it won't be. I mean, him appointing Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, that's going to potentially keep the Supreme Court conservative for another generation, which is just problematic. We can't undo that unless a conservative steps down while a Democrat is in office, is in the White House. And we don't even know if they'd appoint someone who is a firebrand liberal. They might just appoint someone like Merrick Garland, who's just a um, a generic Democrat who's kind of middle of the road and mostly right wing. Um, so in the end, don't view this as damage he's causing to the country that is irreparable. We still can fight back and we can undo this. So in December of last year, after I had already filmed the last episode of the show, Bernie Sanders appeared on CNN for an interview with Jake Tapper, and I wanted to actually talk about this interview because he issued a warning to Republicans that I think is really important. He basically told them that if he were them, they should start worrying right now about the midterm elections that will be occurring at the end of this year, because after they passed that ridiculous tax bill that just was a brazen giveaway to the rich, not only should they be ashamed, but they should be worried that they will all lose their jobs. Now, the thing about this interview is that Bernie Sanders not only made this warning, but he also talked about a lot of the misconceptions that some Americans have about this tax bill, in large part due to the media's inaccurate reporting. And there's an example of it in this very interview, because Jake Tapper, as you'll see, he framed the questions about this bill in a really misleading way, because I don't even know if he realizes that he is painting a narrative about this tax bill that benefits Republicans and makes it seem as though it's better than it really is. So in this first clip I'm going to show you, Bernie Sanders explains exactly why this tax bill is in fact a scam. According to the Tax Policy Center, next year 91% of middle income Americans will receive a tax cut. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah, it is a very good thing, and that's why we should have made the tax breaks for the middle class permanent. But what the Republicans did is made the tax breaks for corporations permanent, the tax breaks for the middle class temporary, and according to the Tax Policy Center, that same organization, at the end of 10 years, 83% of the benefits go to the top 1%, 60% of the benefits go to the top one-tenth of 1%. Meanwhile, at the end of 10 years, well over 80 million Americans will be paying more in taxes. 13 million Americans as a result of this legislation are going to lose their health insurance. Health care premiums are going up. 
We got a $1.4 trillion deficit as a result of this bill. And Paul Ryan is going around saying, oh, we have to offset that deficit by cutting Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. To answer your questions, should we have focused on the needs of the middle class? We should have. But the bulk of the benefits in this legislation go to large, profitable corporations and to millionaires and billionaires. Okay, so when I watch that, I have no problem with what Bernie Sanders said. However, since Bernie Sanders is too polite to call out Jake Tapper for a really misleading way of framing that question, then I have to do it. So he said here that 91% of middle-income Americans will receive a tax cut. Now, this is a misleading statistic to cite because while it may be technically true, Jake Tapper is framing this bill as a predominantly middle-class tax cut bill when that's factually incorrect. And if you actually go to the study he cites from Tax Policy Center, they state, we find the bill would reduce taxes on average for all income groups in both 2018 and 2025. In general, higher income households receive larger average tax cuts as a percentage of after-tax income, with the largest cuts as a share of income going to taxpayers in the 95th to 99th percentile of the income distribution. On average, in 2027, taxes would change little for lower and middle income groups and decrease for higher income groups. Compared to current law, 5% of taxpayers would pay more tax in 2018, 9% in 2025, and 53% in 2027. So, if you look at this bill from a long-term perspective, which we should because it's a tax bill, this is not a tax cut for the middle class bill, and to frame it as that is just incredibly misleading. And the way that this bill is structured is just flawed. I mean, the richer you are, the bigger the tax cut you'll receive. And when 60% of Americans don't even have $500 in savings, well, the bill should be structured the opposite way. It shouldn't be that if you make more money, the government takes less money. It should be that if you make less less money, the government takes less money. Because if you're richer, then you don't need that money as much as poor people do. It's a bill that disproportionately benefits the rich. And a lot of these congressmen and women that voted on it, voted on it knowing that they're going to personally enrich themselves. So to suggest that this is a bill that benefits the middle class, it made me really angry. Jake Tapper knows better. He's one of the smarter pundits at CNN. So he should know to not frame it in a way that is incredibly disingenuous, but he did it anyway. And in fact, he went on to cite another misleading statistic about this tax bill. Well, let's talk about the, the corporate tax cut, because in the hours after the bill passed, major corporations such as AT&T and Comcast promised $1,000 bonuses for their workers, while companies like Wells Fargo and Fifth Third Bank Corp hike their company-wide minimum wage wages to $15 an hour, um, and Republicans say this is evidence that the tax cut is working not just for corporations, but for their employees. Well, there are other corporations, by the way, who are involved now in corporate buybacks, uh, where dividends are going to go up for the CEOs of the largest corporations. Uh, nobody denies that we have right now a tax system in which one out of five major profitable corporations pay zero in taxes. This legislation makes a bad situation worse, and it drives up the deficit. Many large corporations are going to use their tax breaks to make CEOs wealthier and do very little for workers. So again, Jake Tapper is not giving you the full story here, and I think that Bernie Sanders could have done a better job 
explaining what really happened with AT&T and their workers, but I don't know if he's aware of the details because it's it's a pretty shady story. And AT&T, I mean, this is nothing more than corporate PR and spin. So they didn't give bonuses to workers because of this tax bill. They gave bonuses to workers because some employees of AT&T that were being represented by a union, specifically Communications Workers of America, well, that union put pressure on the company to permanently raise wages of workers, but since AT&T was greedy, they actually pushed for a one-time bonus instead. And as the union states, the $1,000 bonus was a drop in the bucket compared to what was promised. And trust me, if you're a poor or middle-income earner, then $1,000 might seem nice, but it's not as nice as having a permanent wage increase. So... What AT&T did here was really sneaky and pretty clever, admittedly, because they got people to think that they were doing this for altruistic reasons. Now, look, it is true that as a result of this bill, at least at face value, companies like Comcast and Boeing actually did give workers bonuses and then they bragged about it. But they're not doing this for altruistic reasons. They're not doing this because uh, they, they care about their employees. They're doing this to prove a point and to prove us wrong and to say, see, when we get tax cuts... We give our workers more money, when in actuality, the lion's share of the money that they'll be raking in as a result of these tax cuts will go to their pockets. So it, they'll give that money back to shareholders. That's what they're going to do. But when you look at this in the long term, that $1,000 bonus is not going to be reoccurring because of this tax bill. Again, this will just exacerbate income and wealth inequality, and these companies are being incredibly disingenuous. But I want to play another clip from this interview that I took issue with. Another provision of this bill that was very interesting had to do uh, with the elimination, uh, the repealing of the individual mandate in Obamacare requiring individuals to buy health insurance. Take a listen to what President Trump had to say about this. Obamacare has been repealed in this bill. We didn't want to bring it up. I told people specifically, be quiet with the fake news media because I don't want them talking too much about it because I didn't know how people would. But now that it's approved, I can say the individual mandate on health care where you had to pay not to have insurance. Okay, think of that one. You pay not to have insurance. The individual mandate has been repealed. Your response? That a president celebrates the fact that 13 million Americans will lose their health insurance. Well, willingly. They'll, they, they will, yeah. They will. Jake, we are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people. As a result of the repeal of the individual mandate, 13 million people will lose their health insurance. Now, some of these young people who are healthy today, you know what? They can get hit by a bus tomorrow. They could be diagnosed with leukemia the next day. Who do you think is now going to pay the bill as a result of the repeal of the individual mandate? You are? I am and every American who has health insurance. Instead of bragging about more Americans without health insurance, we should join every other major country on earth, guarantee health care to all people, and end the absurdity of paying twice as much per capita for health care as any other major nation. So it is true that as a result of Republicans repealing the individual mandate, a lot of Americans will just willingly give up health insurance. And... Yeah, that, that's still a problem because we do want people to have health insurance so that way they're not screwed when they get a medical emergency. But what Jake Tapper 
again, is not pointing out is that this will also lead to a lot of people unwillingly losing medical insurance because if you repeal the individual mandate, this will facilitate a 10% rise in health insurance premiums overall. And if people can't afford that 10% increase, then guess what's going to happen? They're going to unwillingly lose their health insurance because the reason why the individual mandate was important in our broken healthcare system is because it required everyone to have health insurance so that way if someone didn't have health insurance and they had a medical emergency and they couldn't pay for that, then the cost wouldn't be passed on to everyone. This basically stops the cost of healthcare bills from being passed on to everyone else who has healthcare, in theory at least. So, I mean, a repeal of the individual mandate overall is negative. I mean, I don't agree with the individual mandate in principle. I think we should just have Medicare for all so nobody has to worry about health insurance. So really, I expected a lot better from Jake Tapper, who again is, I think, one of the better pundits at CNN. And maybe he was just playing devil's advocate in this interview or trying to be extra neutral for some reason. But the fact of the matter is that this bill has little more than a 30% approval rating. People know it's a scam. You don't have to pretend to be neutral here, Jake. You could just tell it like it is. And Bernie's responses to each of these questions overall was agreeable, I think. But I want to get to the most important point of this interview, where he talks about the backlash Republicans will inevitably see at the end of the year. What you're seeing all across this people, all across this country, are people catching on to the fact that Donald Trump ran for president, saying that he was going to defend the interests of the working class and middle class, and it turned out he lied. Uh, you have a president who told us that he was going to provide health care to everybody, then he proposed 30 million people being thrown off of health insurance. His tax plan was going to benefit the middle class. The bulk of the benefits go to the rich and large corporations. He was going to take on the drug companies, and then he appoints the guy to head the Health and Human Services Agency who comes from the drug companies, etc., etc. So I think what you are seeing is a referendum on Donald Trump about a man who said one thing during the campaign and his actions are very, very diff different. He wanted to drain the swamp. Well, it looks like the swamp now has more billionaires in his administration than any president in American history. So I think the, what we're seeing in Alabama, uh, what we're seeing in Virginia, New Jersey, and in states all across this country are large voter turnouts, where people standing up and fighting back and demanding that we have a government that represents all of us, not just the 1%. If I were the Republicans, I would worry very much about 2018. And what I'm going to be doing is doing everything that I can to rally working people and young people to develop policies that protect workers and the middle class, not just corporations and billionaires. I think Bernie Sanders is right here. People are going to quickly see that this bill will in fact exacerbate income and wealth inequality. And it also demonstrates that Republicans don't give a damn about you and I. They only care about themselves and their rich friends. Hence why as soon as Donald Trump got to Mar-a-Lago on Christmas vacation after this bill was signed into law, he told all of his rich friends, congratulations, you just got a lot richer. So they are throwing around their wealth in our faces and they don't give a damn. And this is what Republicans do. Trump and the Republicans aren't doing anything different than the party has always done. I mean, Reagan got in, cut taxes for the rich. Bush got in, cut taxes for the rich. Hell, even Obama made them permanent. And now Trump is doing the same thing. Republicans are doing what Republicans always do. They get in office and they don't give a fuck about you and I. They just get in there to make the rich richer because surprise, surprise, they're rich. 
so they care about themselves. So I think this will backfire, and I hope it backfires, and I hope that the American people realize that what, what the GOP did was rob them. It took money out of their pockets in order to pay for tax cuts for the rich, and they're not done robbing you just yet because this year they will pursue what they call entitlement reform, and they're going to try to cut Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. But these aren't entitlements. We pay for these with our tax dollars. So you don't have a right to get in there and take it away from us. Social Security, I mean, this comes out of our paychecks. You're basically saving money for us. That's not your money to touch, but they're going to do it anyway because that is a cookie jar that their rich friends have been wanting to rub for decades. So this is what Republicans are all about. And Bernie Sanders is issuing a warning to them that they really should take seriously. So as you all know, 2018 started off with a bang with a surprising, albeit incredibly delightful announcement from corrupt crony capitalist Republican Senator Orrin Hatch that he would be retiring at the end of this term. But every good fighter knows when to hang up the gloves. And for me, that time is uh, soon approaching. That's why after much prayer and discussion with family and friends, I've decided to retire at the end of this term. Retire at the end of this term. Retire at the end of this term. Although I will miss serving you in the Senate, I look forward to spending more time with my family, especially my sweet wife Elaine, whose unwavering love and support made all of this possible. I'm deeply grateful for the privilege you've given me to serve as your senator these last four decades. I may be leaving the Senate, but the next chapter in my public service is just beginning. I want to thank you all for your support through these many years. Okay, we're going to have to stop the celebration because even though this sounds like good news, it immediately turned into a news story about failed presidential candidate Mitt Romney because, as the New York Times reports, Orrin Hatch, Utah senator to retire, opening path for Mitt Romney. And as CNN reports, Utah Republican Orrin Hatch to retire, clearing way for Mitt Romney. And as MSNBC reports, Orrin Hatch retirement opens door for a Mitt Romney Senate run. And as NBC News reports, Orrin Hatch to retire, opening door for Romney. Well, how about we close the door on Mitt Romney and stop shining a spotlight on him and away from any potential progressive that might want to run for that seat? Why do we have to begrudgingly accept Mitt Romney, even though most Republicans probably don't want Mitt Romney to run? Why doesn't Mitt Romney take all of his millions of dollars and his car elevator and go back to his mansion and retire? So when I saw how quickly the story about Orrin Hatch retiring turned into a story about Mitt Romney re-entering politics, I was so angry because if we're getting rid of one crony capitalist corrupt Republican, we don't need to replace him with another one. We have enough corrupt Republicans and Democrats in Congress. Can we not get some new blood in Congress? Someone who's not corrupt? Maybe someone who's progressive? Are there not any progressives in Utah? I get that they're a conservative state, but can you not do better than Mitt Romney? But if you thought that one failed presidential candidate getting back into politics was enough, well, unfortunately for all of us, another failed presidential candidate is now considering getting back into politics. In fact, the Democratic Party equivalent to Mitt Romney, Hillary Rodham Clinton, is reportedly mulling over what her role in this year's midterm elections should be. Well, allow me to help you out with that, Hillary Clinton. Your role will be to do nothing. If you get involved then any chance we had at there being a blue wave in 2018, it goes away because you are politically toxic and Americans don't like you. You gave us Donald Trump, 
please go away. Please don't get involved. She already has a super PAC, so she'll be contributing to some politicians at least. But a role even bigger than that, which is implied here, her campaigning for people is what they were talking about. That's problematic. That would be devastating. Now, there's plenty of things that Hillary Clinton can do. You could take up some type of hobby. I'm not very creative. I think she should just do nothing. But Vanity Fair and their writers basically made a video responding to this article and the prospect of her running for president more generally in 2020. And these are the suggestions that they came up with to offer to Hillary Clinton in order to maybe discourage her from running again or getting involved in politics at all. It's time to start working on your sequel to your book, What Happened? What the hell happened? Get someone on your tech staff to disable autofill on your iPhone so that typing an F doesn't become form exploratory committee for 2020. You know on Anderson Cooper, you were telling him about alternate nostril breathing? You seem really adept. You should try teaching a class. Take more photos in the woods. How else are you going to meet unsuspecting hikers? Take up a new hobby in the new year. Volunteer work, knitting, improv comedy, literally anything that'll keep you from running again. To finally put away your James Comey voodoo doll. Now we all know you think that James Comey cost you the election, and he might have, but so did a handful of other things. It's a year later and time to move on. So cheers to you, Hillary Clinton. Cheers to you, Hillary. Cheers to you, Hillary Clinton. She could also perhaps play the HD remake of Okami, which is now on Steam for just $20. I actually got it for Christmas, and it's amazing. I'm addicted to it. So Hillary could try that. However, some people think that failed presidential candidates like Hillary Clinton shouldn't go away. In fact, a lot of Hillary Clinton loyalists were outraged by Vanity Fair's video. So for example here, former advisor to Hillary Clinton, Adam Parkomenko, tweeted out an image of him burning a copy of Vanity Fair. Also, Hillary's number one fan, Peter Dow, states, So Vanity Fair decided that the best way to end 2017 was to take a repulsive cheap shot at Hillary Clinton, one of the most accomplished women in the history of the United States. Now, cancel Vanity Fair is moving. Now, I know that as I read you Peter Dow's tweet, you visualized him trying to inhale Hillary Clinton's farts as he wrote that out. Additionally, actress Patricia Arquette responded to Vanity Fair in a caps-filled rant saying, Hey, stop telling women what the fuck they should do or can do. Get over your mommy issues. Now, when people asked Patricia Arquette to be introspective about the reason why she was outraged over a video that could only possibly be offensive because of how bland it was, she didn't respond to her critics with words. Rather, she posted a link to an article that talks about a victim of rape that was forced to co-parent. Now, even though the story is terribly sad, it has absolutely nothing to do with Vanity Fair or Hillary Clinton. It's irrelevant. Legally forcing a rape victim to co-parent with her abuser is not in any way equivalent to a magazine jokingly suggesting that a rich white lady finds something else to do with her time rather than participate in elections and ultimately facilitate more Republican victories. But even though most normal people see how that link is irrelevant, that didn't stop Patricia Arquette from posting it over and over and over and over and over and over again. But it would be remiss of me to not tell you about another failed presidential candidate 
that is contemplating getting back into politics. And that individual is none other than Michelle Bachman, the female political equivalent to Roy Moore, who recently announced that she was considering a run for the U.S. Senate, but this is only in the event that she's able to obtain approval from God first. Well, the good news, Michelle, is that I actually talked to God right before filming this, and he told me to tell you to definitely not run for Congress ever again. In fact, take your religious enthusiasm and do missionary work, perhaps on the moon or Mars, where you can uh, reach out to people who really never heard about God. So go there, leave all of us sane humans on Earth. But unfortunately, you know, no matter what heathens like myself have to say about this, in a recent taping of the Jim Baker show, she made it clear that she's not playing games. She really is serious about running. Now in Minnesota, Al Franken, as you know, yeah. has yeah. resigned. I'm from Minnesota. I've had people contact me and urge me to run for that Senate seat. And the only reason I would run is for the ability to take these principles into the United States Senate and to be able to advocate for these principles. Yeah. Uh. The question is, is it should it be me? Should it be now? But there's also a cost. There's a price you pay. Sure. It's and, you, and the price is bigger than ever because the is. swamp is so toxic. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to stand for biblical principles in D.C. Um, and you stick your head up out of the hole, you do. You know the blades come whirring and they try to chop you off. This is right. not an easy place to be. No. So I mean, we're trying to be wise. Should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? What? I mean, I trust in a big God. Yeah. And so he got us over all those finish lines, but, but I also believed I was supposed to run for president. So yeah. the question is, it's, am I being called to do this right. now? I don't know. Could you handle it? Again? Oh, I could handle the job. I, I, know, I know how to do this. I know how to do But the pain job. of the yes. job. Well, that's the thing. That's, that's what I've got it's to figure out. It's a dirty fight. It's a, it's, it, People, is, it isn't even it's a, This country, everything about what was going on, the fight for everything, the political and the press, it's dirty. It's like nothing it's we've mean. ever seen nothing. before. It's a fight to death. And right now, they want to kill the president of the United States. What the hell did you just say? How about this, Michelle? Rather than involving yourself in politics again when you are clearly unfit to even be dog catcher, why don't you watch the Vanity Fair video that was intended for Hillary Clinton and apply that to yourself? Because certainly, there's a lot of other things you can do. You can go back to your mansion and retire with your gay husband and enjoy your life. You have millions of dollars. Why not just leave us alone? You can also, again, I'm going to suggest the uh, HD remake of Okami. It's 20 bucks on Steam. It's a really great game. I'm not being paid to promote this game. I just really think that we need to make sure that politicians have things to do so that way they don't get back into politics after they've already failed. But in making these suggestions to Michelle Bachman, I'm probably angering people like Patricia Arquette who think other people, particularly men, should stop telling women what they should do or can do. Unless, however, that's a standard that they only apply to women they like. So if it's a woman that they don't like, like Michelle Bachman, then maybe I'm not sexist for encouraging Michelle Bachman to not get back into politics after her failed presidential run. I don't know. But contrary to popular belief, all three of these failed presidential candidates, these zombie politicians, need to do the country a favor and retire permanently. 
Take a goddamn hint. We're not into you. We rejected you. We didn't want you to be the president of the United States, and we sure as hell don't want you involved in any future elections or running for Congress. So if they're all mulling over what they should do to get involved in politics again, Mitt Romney, go back to your mansion. You have an elevator specifically for your cars. Play with that. Have fun. Hillary Clinton, buy another mansion. Go on, you know, buy another yacht. Go on a shopping spree. You can buy 10 private jets easily and still have more money than you'll ever be able to spend in five lifetimes. Michelle Bachman, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you because I don't know what you do. You're not a normal human being. You are very, you're cray cray. You're weird. And certainly this isn't to suggest that Hillary Clinton is equivalent to Michelle Bachman, or even Mitt Romney is equivalent to Michelle Bachman. But if you get out of politics and you weren't very popular, come on, leave us alone. It's time that we all move forward and put the past behind us. Now that the FCC has already voted to repeal Title II net neutrality protections, they are now on to their next mission to even further fuck up the internet. So what Ajit Pai now wants to do is reclassify cell data as broadband. Now, at face value, you might think, well, why does this matter? Why is this significant? Because I can reclassify a carrot as a hot dog, but that still doesn't change the essence of what a carrot is. Well, the problem, however, is that this would be a significant change that will ultimately lower the standards of broadband internet service in America. Now, as Kaylee Rogers of Motherboard explains, this idea to reclassify smartphone data as broadband was first proposed in August, but with the net neutrality repeal out of the way, the FCC is expected to vote on the proposal by February 3rd. Currently, the FCC defines broadband connection as 25 megabits per second download speeds and 3 megabits per second upload speeds minimum. The new proposal would keep these minimums in place for fixed wireline broadband, but also expand the definition to include cell phone data coverage. This would not only camouflage many of the communities in the U.S. with no access to the internet, but could prevent them from getting necessary funding to build that access. Cell service is often slower, more expensive, and comes with data caps, and even tethering a computer to a phone for internet isn't a long-term solution, especially for families with multiple people trying to log on at once to do homework or work or watch Netflix. It seems antithetical to all other efforts we're doing, said Deb Sosik, the executive director of Next Century Cities, a coalition of municipalities aimed at expanding local broadband access. I spent a good part of my life as a teacher and a principal. If I had a classroom full of children that included a lot of failing students, I wouldn't change my standards to increase the number of passing grades. I'd change the intervention. Though the process to change these definitions is not as formal as what was required to roll back net neutrality rules, there was still an opportunity for groups to comment this summer, and if there's enough public backlash, it could potentially meet a different fate. Now, that's probably the only part of this article that I disagree with, because because as we've seen with net neutrality, even though the FCC received more than 23 million comments in the end, they still repealed it and didn't think twice about doing it. So make no mistake about it, this is less important than repealing net neutrality, of course. But it goes to show you the overall trend and the direction the FCC is headed in under the leadership of Ajit Pai. They're trying to make sure that internet service providers can not only rip you off, but offer shittier service to you. And this proves it. Cell phone data is its own thing. It's not broadband. It's not. 
but in changing the definition of broadband to include cell phone data that lowers the standards and thus is problematic. Now, the thing about this is that there was so much noise surrounding net neutrality and rightfully so, this kind of snuck past us. I didn't know about this because as you all know, there's a lot that the FCC is currently doing. I mean, they are removing subsidies. They're doing a lot to deregulate the industry so that way internet service providers and Ajit Pai's previous and future employer probably will make even more money, but this one just snuck past us. So we do have a little bit of time. They won't be voting on this until February 3rd. You can still tweet to Ajit Pai if you guys aren't already doing that, because I know you guys are relentless and you haven't stopped yet. I've tried to take a break from tweeting to Ajit Pai just so that way I don't seem like a stalker because we all know that uh, I'm not a fan of Ajit and he's probably not a fan of me either. I've talked about him quite a bit, but we do have to make sure that we put pressure on the FCC to stop this. But if you really have to pick and choose a battle, of course, net neutrality is more important. But understand that the battle for net neutrality, it heads to the courts. So these rules aren't just going to go into effect. They still have to be argued. But with this one, I mean, this is this is not a change that is that significant at face value. But since the FCC doesn't really need to do much to push this through. They just vote on it, and then it basically becomes law. There's, they're not going to have to defend this in court or anything like that. So it's difficult to anticipate the ways in which this will specifically lead to lower quality broadband, admittedly so, but at the same time, we shouldn't be lowering our standards. We should be increasing our standards so that internet service providers offer you better internet for more affordable prices. I mean, with how much we pay for internet, and when you compare our internet speeds in the United States to other countries, I mean, we are all getting a bad bargain. We pay too much and don't get enough. And this is why whenever I talk about net neutrality or the internet, I want to encourage you to go to your city council meeting and push for public broadband because if you own the internet, you control the internet. It's in your hands. Your tax dollars funded, then it's yours. No ISPs to uh, get rid of net neutrality. All the lobbying in the world wouldn't make a difference when it comes to net neutrality, although companies are trying to fight public broadband. But this is the way of the future, I think. And another thing we have to talk about is nationalizing the broadband industry. Since internet service providers like Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, since they don't care about providing more Americans with internet access and only care about increasing their profits, which, I mean, that's not surprising. They're companies. They have a fiduciary responsibility to increase shareholder value. So it's not surprising. But if we nationalize that industry and take out that profit motive, kind of like healthcare, well, we'll just have a better, faster, cheaper internet. So we need that. And the fight starts with you putting pressure on your city council to um, enact a public broadband bill so that way your city can get public broadband and you don't have to go through Comcast or Verizon. Uh, that really would be the permanent solution to all of these problems and all the damage the FCC is currently doing under the leadership of Ajit Pai. So as you all know, when the FCC voted to repeal Title II net neutrality protections, they included a clause in that repeal order that preempts states and prohibits them from enacting their own net neutrality laws. So that was something that the internet service providers actually pressured the FCC to include in that repeal order, because knowing that net neutrality is overwhelmingly popular, 
These ISPs, like Comcast and Verizon, knew that once the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality, states would immediately try to enact their own rules, and they're right. So the FCC voted to stop states from doing this. But in spite of that, states are now defying the FCC and effectively giving Ajit Pai the middle finger, and they're still passing their own net neutrality rules. So Sean Captain of Fast Company explains, along with the expected flood of lawsuits by activist groups fighting to preserve net neutrality, states have also taken up the cause. We all agree that in an ideal world, it should be handled at the federal level, says California State Senator Scott Weiner. But if the federal government's going to abdicate, then we need to take action, and I'm glad that a number of states are looking at this. Along with pursuing lawsuits over irregularities in the FCC process, like millions of fake citizen comments being submitted, several states are crafting their own net neutrality laws, which they will start debating as new legislative sessions commence this month. They would prohibit internet service providers from blocking or hindering access to legal online content sources or from offering premium bandwidth fast lane deals to others. Washington state was first to act, with Democratic and Republican state representatives debuting nearly identical bills back on December 13th and 14th. Regardless of their politics, state net neutrality advocates face a tough course through unfamiliar territory. In its lengthy order abolishing net neutrality policy, the FCC asserted the federal government's right to preempt other laws or policies, allowing state and local governments to adopt their own separate requirements which could impose far greater burdens than the federal regulatory regime could significantly disrupt the balance we strike here, reads the FCC's abolition order. Telecommunications in particular, it's very, very hairy to try to do this without triggering federal preemption, says Jake Egloff, the legislative aide to New York Democrat Assembly member Patricia Fahey. They have also crafted legislation establishing net neutrality requirements rather than regulate ISPs directly. It would exert financial pressure by only allowing the state and local governments to contract with ISPs certified as meeting New York's net neutrality requirements. I don't want to say backdoor, but it is a side door, says Fahey, whose district includes the state capital, Albany. The state's power of the purse is just one of the side door measures her colleague Hoyleman and California's Wiener are considering. They might also make meeting net neutrality standards a prerequisite for awarding cable franchises or providing access to state-owned land or utility poles for laying cables and they are looking at the front door approach of regulating ISPs directly under consumer protection law. The FCC issued their fiat that tells the states they can't do anything. We don't think the FCC has the power and they've lost that argument in court before, says Wiener. So this is really exciting and this is a gigantic indication that the battle for net neutrality certainly isn't over. It may look like a foregone conclusion because the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality protections, but this is going to be a long battle that we now watch unfold in the courts. Now, it is the case that the FCC did lose this battle in court before, but it's tricky because Donald Trump has appointed a lot of federal judges across the country, and in the event a judge who was appointed by Donald Trump ends up hearing this case, then he could potentially, he or she, could invoke the supremacy clause of the Constitution, which basically means that federal law overrides state laws, which would wipe out these state laws. But this isn't this isn't guaranteed. It's just one of the many pitfalls in the fight to save net neutrality. But I just love that state legislators are not just rolling over and dying. And they're clever in their approach. They're crafting policy in a way so that they're not necessarily banning internet service providers from violating net neutrality, but they're saying we're not 
going to do business with you if you don't support our net neutrality laws. And I think it's genius. But not all states are, are doing it that way. They're just outright banning internet service providers from violating net neutrality. And I love it. This is this is courageous here. I mean, what do Republicans always say? They, are, they always claim to be federalists. They claim that states are laboratories for democracy, so you should let them do what they want to do. The FCC said, no, they don't get to do what they want to do. And now the states are saying, fuck off. We're going to do what the fuck we want to do. And, you know, it's this is going to be such a long battle as... As we see these lawsuits headed to court with now 17 states suing the FCC, as we see states making their own laws in defiance of the FCC's preemption laws, the battle is far from over. And I sound like a broken record, but I know a lot of you are demoralized right now. And um, I hear from you all the time. A lot of people send me messages saying, what can we do to fight? I don't want to just hear about the bad and the negative. I want to know what I can do to keep net neutrality and uh, make sure it's still the status quo in America. Well, look. It's now time. If you really want to make a difference, you can write your congressman or woman or your representative. Let them know that they need to sign on to the Congressional Review Act. Really, you should pressure your senator currently to sign on to the CRA. That's really important because they could just simply void what the FCC did. That would be the easiest way. No long legal battle, no fight in states individually. It'd just be null and void like that. I mean, look, that would have to pass in the House as well, but if we could get Congress to pass the nullification of net neutrality via the Congressional Review Act, it would be perfect because the FCC, their hands would be tied. They couldn't do anything. So look, I, I will keep you guys up to date on this battle, but just know that if you want net neutrality, you've got to fight for it. The battle isn't over just because the FCC voted. The battle begins now officially, and you can still have a say. Call your senator, call your representative, and make your voice heard. The former presidential candidate turned DNC chair turned lobbyist Howard Dean is now back in the news because he has some insight as to what the Democratic Party should do if they want to be successful in 2018 and 2020. Now, at face value, if you listen to him, you might think that he's on our side. And when I say our, I mean millennials, because he thinks that his generation should get the hell out of the way and allow our generation to take over politics. But even though this might sound reasonable at face value, really, there's a more nefarious plan behind what Howard Dean is currently saying. Now, we're going to talk about that. But first of all, I'll show you the clip and tell you specifically why I take issue with what he's saying. So let's talk about, Howard, where the progressive movement is right now as somebody who so uh, has represented and been invested in it from the Women's March forward. It has been a year of energy for progressive groups. How does that translate going forward? Can they keep up that energy? Well, I actually think the progressives are in the uh, in the process of informally taking taking over the Democratic Party. Um, I think the country has moved to the left. It's shocking to me, but a majority of Americans think Medicare for all is a good idea. I mean, and that, frankly, Bernie gets a lot of credit for that. I don't think he's going to be the next nominee, but he could be. Um, but I, because I'm very much for somebody who's younger, I think my generation's got to get the hell out of politics, start coaching and, and start moving up this next generation. So that, who are more, I think, fiscally sane. Neither Republicans or Democrats can claim they're fiscally responsible anymore after what the Republicans just did in this tax bill. And this generation, this young generation is going to pay for that if we don't get the hell out of the way. And 
So that means no Bernie Sanders, no Joe Biden, for example. They running. may well run. I'm yeah. going to be supporting somebody who's younger in the next generation. Who I don't know who it is yet, but I'm going to. I was going to say, do you have anybody in mind yet? It's too I, early. There, I think there's a bunch of people that are terrific, and there's more people that aren't on my list who are terrific. Uh, Chris Murphy from Pennsylvania. I mean, from uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Um, uh, Kamala Harris, of course. Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, I mean, there's there's Eric Garcetti from Los Angeles, a bit of a long shot, but Trump's broken the rules. You now mayors may have a shot. And there's look, there's tons of other young people. We were joking before the show, Sam and I, 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 I think or this segment. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw 17 people. running. Yeah. yeah. Look a little bit like the Republican primary last well, time. Well, hopefully around, there won't right? be any people who aren't who are just, <laughs> you know, in there for the fun of it. OK, so um, <laughs> we'll start this off by saying that not 100 percent of what he said is incorrect. So he states here that progressives are in the process of taking over the Democratic Party. This is correct. I agree with that because, yes, we are indeed trying to take over the Democratic Party. He also states correctly so that the country is moving left. But it's not just that the country is moving left on issues like Medicare for All. The country has always been relatively progressive when you look at the issues. So if you ask people whether or not they feel as though they're conservative or liberal, a lot of people will say they're conservative, others will say moderate. Very few people would probably identify as progressive. But when you actually ask them specifically about policies, then there's no question about it. They are progressive, and they're getting more progressive. So he's right about that. He also states that, you know, a majority of Americans now think Medicare for All is a good idea, which he credits Bernie Sanders for. Again, this is true. But where Howard Dean really started to go off the rails here was when he talked about how um, he's very much for someone that's younger. He thinks his generation has got to get the hell out of politics. Now, my first instinct when I heard him say that was, I don't care at all how old you are. You could be 452. I would vote for you so long as you're actually championing progressive ideas. Now, what he's saying, hes I mean, he's not really saying this explicitly, but he's basically telling us, I don't want Bernie Sanders to ever be president. That's why I'm taking this stance, this seemingly pro-millennial stance, when he doesn't tell you that if he really was a friend to millennials like he wants us to think he is, then he should be championing the politician who agrees with us politically. And that individual, of course, is Bernie Sanders, Nina Turner. But when he talked about his choices and who he would support as a potential Democratic nominee in 2020, he didn't say Bernie. He listed Chris Murphy as one of the options. Now, Chris Murphy is a corporate sellout. He listed Kamala Harris, who is the establishment's favorite. And even though she is at least taking the right position on a lot of progressive issues like Medicare for All. The problem with Kamala Harris is that she's suspect because all of the Democratic Party's major donors are lining up behind her, and she's taking a lot of money from large multinational corporations. That's a, that's a huge red flag. We were duped over by someone who pretended to be progressive before, Barack Obama. And you better believe that we're not going to fall for that again. Now, additionally, he listed Kirsten Gillibrand, who, again, she's another individual like Kamala Harris, who's getting on the right side of the issue. She co-sponsored Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. However, she is no friend to progressives. And he also mentioned Eric Garcetti, who I admittedly don't know too much about to really make a judgment on. But what he's doing is he is trying to pretend like he's on our side, but yet he's trying to suggest that a younger candidate like Kamala Harris or Kirsten Gillibrand would be preferable for millennials just because of their age. 
But millennials, if you truly want to represent us, Howard, then you would realize that we couldn't care less about age or a politician's aesthetic in any way, shape, or form. All we care about is the policy ideas that they're championing. That's all we care about. That's it. That is it. It's as simple as that. We're pretty easy to please, I think. So if you think that we're going to reject someone who's old, like Joe Biden, for example, just because of his age, well, you're wrong. I don't not support Joe Biden, and I won't support him in 2020 because he's old. I don't support Joe Biden because he's a corporatist, and there's a lot of articles showing that he's positioning himself as the anti-Bernie Sanders. Well, if you are positioning yourself as the anti-Bernie Sanders, then you are anti-Democratic Party base, because Bernie Sanders is talking about policies that the Democratic Party's base wants. So to me, even though this may seem like a benign thing to assert and say, well, you know, I'm in favor of younger people taking over, it's really nefarious because what he's actually saying without saying it is that he wants a corporatist to be in control of the Democratic Party. And he, I mean, he's already winning this battle. Corporatists are still in control of the Democratic Party, even if it's the case that we're fighting to take over the party. I mean, the DNC is controlled by Tom Perez. We have Chuck Schumer as the Senate Minority Leader. We have Nancy Pelosi as the House Minority Speaker. Corporatists are in control of the Democratic Party, and that has yet to change. But what millennials actually want to do is have a political revolution where we all come together and actually push for progressive policy ideas. It's not like this is something that's pie in the sky because it's been done before. We did this during the New Deal era. Nobody would question the New Deal because they knew they would get obliterated during the next election if they tried to go after any of the reforms that FDR implemented. That's what we want again. We want Medicare for all. We want strong unions. We want a $15 an hour minimum wage at a minimum. We also want criminal justice reform. We want to end all of the wars. We want corporations and billionaires and millionaires to actually pay their fair share. These aren't unpopular ideas. These aren't ideas that are only shared among millennials. These are ideas that the overwhelming majority of the American people want. So if you really are trying to get on our good side, Howard Dean, you're going about this the wrong way. And if you really want to show us that you care about millennials, then you would endorse Bernie Sanders for 2020. But we all know Howard Dean is a corporatist. He's now a lobbyist, and he would never do something like that. In fact, he was a Clinton surrogate in the 2015 or 2016 election, but he spoke out in Hillary Clinton's favor a lot in 2015, and he smeared Bernie Sanders at every chance he got. So Howard Dean is no friend to us. He's a fake friend. And Howard, I'm sorry, but we're on to your bullshit. The Senate Intelligence Committee is now officially investigating 2016 Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein for potential collusion with Russia in order to tip the scales against Hillary Clinton in favor of Donald Trump. Now, if you're wondering what she might have done, well, this entire investigation was catalyzed by this now infamous photograph of Jill Stein attending a media conference sitting at the same table as Michael Flynn and Russian President. President Vladimir Putin. Now look, admittedly, the optics of this photo do seem bad at face value, but all you really have to do is apply some simple logic in order to get to the point where you can easily see that Jill Stein probably didn't collude with Russia because if Jill Stein was theoretically going to team up with Russia in order to sway the election, 
wouldn't she want to never be seen in public with Vladimir Putin? I mean, would someone who is devious and nefarious enough to collude with a foreign government and literally commit treason take a fucking selfie of herself at this event? The answer is definitely no. They would want to cover their tracks. She would never want to be seen, not only in public with Vladimir Putin, but in Russia, generally speaking. Furthermore, this conference had politicians from all over the world, and Jill Stein was one of many international politicians at this event. And mind you, 2016 is not the first year that she decided to run for president. She also ran in 2012 as well, and the only time she received even a shred of press coverage was when she was arrested outside of a debate between Obama and Mitt Romney when she demanded to be included. Now, if it were me, if I were Jill Stein, I personally definitely would not have attended this event because number one, fuck Russia. They're a homophobic, authoritarian country that doesn't care about human rights. Now, our country doesn't as well, but I'm certainly not going to support another country that doesn't care about human rights. But at the same time, if you're going to be running for president the following year and you want people to take you seriously and treat you as a serious candidate and demonstrate that you're actually capable of conducting diplomacy with other world leaders, I can see why Jill Stein wanted to attend this event, but now I don't think she would have done it knowing the direction the country would head towards in the next couple of years. But rather than me telling you why I don't think a photograph is sufficient evidence to confirm collusion, I'm going to allow Jill Stein to go ahead and defend herself. I think it's really great to clear the air because that picture has been circulated, sort of a factless photograph that's been used to smear our campaign, actually, for the better part of a year. And it really only surfaced a year after the event itself, which was back in 2015, once the um, DNC, the Democratic National Committee, emails were leaked. And, you know, and then suddenly, you know, there was an effort to change the topic from the collusion of the Democratic Party to eliminate Bernie Sanders, which was, you know, essentially a rigged primary. There was an effort to kind of divert attention. And our, the picture of my attendance at a conference, actually, at RT, uh, Russia Today TV station, who else was there? The BBC was there, the uh, national networks for China, for India, Telesur, the Canadian Broadcasting System. This was a conference, a substantive conference, actually, about foreign policy issues. I didn't mm -hmm. speak with Vladimir Putin, and I'll come back to that, but I had a chance to speak with leaders from China uh, and from the UK. This is what we're supposed to do, whether we're citizens, candidates, okay. or elected officials. But you were at we Vladimir Putin's table, which is... Um, part of what is raising questions among investigators. Let me just ask you this, yes. because you say, look, and, and there is nothing... And can I just clarify? Yes. There, yeah, if I could clarify that there was no translator at the table. Vladimir Putin came in very late uh, with three people, three, four, that I thought were his bodyguards. It turns out they were core people in his administration, but you never would have known it. There were no introductions, mm -hmm. no conversations. Russians spoke Russian. I spoke to the only person in earshot that spoke English, who was a German diplomat. So, I mean, there you have it. You can believe her or not, but she claims she was there because of RT. There's a lot of progressive hosts on, on RT, even if you disagree with who funds RT. I mean, you have Tom Hartman, Lee Kim. These are actually phenomenal hosts, and they are objective. So I believe Jill Stein. You don't have to believe her. I certainly believe her. I actually interviewed Jill Stein and she came off as a very genuine person. Um, there were no red flags at all. In fact, I couldn't get her to stop talking about policy. I asked 
what her policy positions were, and it took her 12 minutes to answer the question. So clearly, this is an individual that is driven by altruism. She wants to do right for the world, and she didn't want to run for president in the Democratic Party because they're just too corrupt. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So I believe her. But she discusses in this next clip here, I'm going to show you, why she doesn't necessarily believe that this is about her colluding. This is kind of a way of punishing anyone who dared to take votes away from Hillary Clinton. And in the view of mm -hmm. a lot of people in Washington, you got Donald Trump elected. Do you see this as punishment for the crime of running for um, president? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. I mean, in many ways, many of the articles, like the New York Times three days ago in announcing this investigation, began with a quote from a former spokesperson for the Clinton campaign saying that, well, isn't this great because so many um, Clinton Democrats are furious at me. They're outraged that yeah. I dared, in so many words, you know, dared to think that we get to make up our own minds, that our votes don't belong to Hillary Clinton or to anybody else. But I I gotta say, you know, it's not just Democrats. This is a bipartisan commission oh, that's led by Republicans. I'm aware. And yeah, yeah, they, they have it in as well because it's very inconvenient to have a, you know, uh, an opposition uh, political party that's but, not but, taking but if they, orders if they from they the disagree same uh, with suspects. You. Look, if they disagree with what you're saying, and for the record, I disagree with almost everything you say. But if you disagree <laughs> with what you say, why not argue against it? Why try to pretend that you're an agent of a foreign government? That seems like McCarthyism to me. Uh, you know, you're not the only person to suggest that. I think, you know, this is, you know, let me say, I think there are legitimate aims here um, in the investigation. I think an interference in our election is much bigger than the Russians, you know, and we have yet to see the proof. I would like to see the evidence of Russian culpability here. When uh, John Kennedy, uh, you know, was facing the Cuban Missile Crisis, he declassified the evidence to show the photographs right, of the exactly. missiles in Cuba. You know, aren't we owed that as the American public? We didn't get to really see the evidence before the run-up to the Iraq War. We are still paying that price, five and a half trillion dollars and counting. So what she's saying here I think is incredibly reasonable. I do believe that she's correct in pointing out the importance of this investigation. Because even if Mueller doesn't find evidence that Donald Trump colluded with Russia, we all know that there is a possibility that Donald Trump may have some unsavory, possibly even illegal business deals with Russian oligarchs. And these could be a huge conflict of interest. Maybe there's a money laundering scheme of some sort. All we can do at this point is speculate until we see the evidence. But overall, I think that a lot of us agree that this investigation is important. But in the process of investigating Donald Trump, this is turning into a political witch hunt. Anyone that basically was against Hillary Clinton is now targeted as some type of Russian puppet. I mean, we've seen Clinton loyalists call for Bernie Sanders to be investigated on Twitter since he dared to run against Hillary Clinton as well. And many also called for Jill Stein to be investigated and now they're getting their wish. They're trying to punish Jill Stein seemingly because she chose to run for president. And the reason why neoliberals are jumping on board with this is because they just don't like Jill Stein. The evidence is one photograph. That's it. And yes, it's a photograph that doesn't necessarily make Jill Stein look good. But at the same time, that is not evidence of collusion. But nonetheless, that doesn't stop the media from heavily suggesting that that is in fact the case. And they're so desperate to paint Jill Stein as a Russian puppet that they're even resorting to conspiracy theories. Case in point. It was a... <laughs> 
Very bizarre, and you don't just end up accidentally, as has been、uh, suggested sometimes in the past, at a table with President Putin. That happens for a reason. Talking about orphans. But what you should know is that RT has been very friendly to Jill Stein and the things that she stood for.、Uh, they get a lot of airtime. She's been on that program many times.、Uh, RT in general tends to inflate、uh, political leaders and political groups that don't get as much attention here. And if you just watched RT, you would think that these are major political candidates,、uh, and therefore maybe she thought she was returning the favor given all the、uh, favorable coverage that she and her party had received on RT. This this idea that someone would be invited, paid, and have their trip paid for to go to Russia. Uh, one might almost argue they do that a lot in the hopes that they'll cultivate some relationships. So that was the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, and we all heard him just say, "You don't just end up at the same table with Vladimir Putin." Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Meaning, she was probably there for a reason. It wasn't this media conference, like they say. Although in the interview, he kind of does suggest that at one point,、um, she was there maybe for a nefarious reason. And what the host implied there was that, well, you know. It also looks like she's colluding with Russia because they paid for her trip, but that's factually incorrect. Jill Stein did not take money from RT; she paid for this trip herself. That's what she maintains, at least. But even though Jill Stein may have been arbitrarily looped into this investigation for no good reason, in my opinion, this isn't even really about Jill Stein. This is about punishing third-party candidates in general. Both Democrats and Republicans don't like third-party candidates. And this next clip really gives you the sense that that is in fact the case. So, so、uh, Ambassador, you had sort of implied, and others have said that look, the, the the margin that Jill Stein took in this election, if you were to work it backwards and you were a little conspiratorial, one might assume that. It was it was enough to defeat Hillary Clinton, which was a good investment if the Russians were involved in that. Well, yeah. Let's be careful. We don't know exactly why people voted for whom, and、uh, it's very difficult to measure causality here. But two things are very obvious: that she took votes away from somebody, and most likely those voters were for, from Hillary Clinton. And two, there's a likelihood that she suppressed voter turnout for Secretary Clinton. So even if they didn't vote for her,、uh, the, those that supported those ideas and were less likely to vote for her because she was trumpeting issues and、uh, positions that were anti-Clinton. So it was in the margins the effect of, of her candidacy. But this election was won in the margins. So there you have it. Jill Stein specifically cost Hillary Clinton the election. It wasn't Hillary Clinton that cost Hillary Clinton the election. It was Jill Stein that cost Hillary Clinton the election because she quote took votes away from Hillary Clinton. But Jill Stein. She didn't take anyone's votes away from anybody. Nobody's entitled to our votes, and if the Democratic Party wants our votes, then they're going to have to earn our votes. Jill Stein earned my vote. Hillary Clinton did not. Now, this would be a completely different story if I lived in a swing state. I probably would have sucked it up and voted for Hillary Clinton, even if it would have made me queasy. Because yes, Donald Trump is in fact a disaster. But since I was in a blue state, I chose to vote for Jill Stein. And if Jill Stein wasn't an option, then I probably just would. Would have written in Bernie Sanders in protest because I wasn't voting for Hillary Clinton because I don't vote for conservative candidates in a party that's supposed to be liberal because that just means that you are enabling the Democratic Party to move even further to the right, which I do not agree with. But the idea here is to shift blame away from Hillary for her incompetence and onto Jill Stein and other third-party candidates. They're trying to promote this idea that. 
third-party candidates don't just spoil elections, but they now threaten democracy because now they're capable of colluding with Russia. But really, I mean, third parties are good for democracy. They're a necessary check on larger political parties because since we live in a two-party system, we need a Green Party to threaten the vote totals of Democrats so they don't get too far out of line. So anytime Democrats shift too far to the right, we need the Green Party to start taking away a significant amount of votes so they realize, oh yeah, we're supposed to be liberal, we should probably move back to the left. And the Libertarian Party also stops Republicans from shifting too far to the right as well. So these third parties are absolutely necessary. We need competition so that way the big parties realize that they can't just get away with anything. And if the Democratic Party was sufficiently liberal and actually represented their base well, Green Party candidates would never pose a threat. In fact, when Jill Stein ran for president in 2012, she didn't even achieve half of a percentage point of the vote share. And Obama still won, handily so, against Mitt Romney. But but in 2016, since more liberals were dissatisfied with Clinton, who was demonstrably more conservative than Obama was, Jill Stein ended up getting more of the vote share. Third-party candidates only spoil elections when the Democratic option sucks. When the Democratic nominee is actually inspirational and can get people out to vote for them, you never hear about third-party candidates. And that's because third-party candidates, again, they only threaten elections and threaten Democrats if the Democratic Party doesn't actually appeal to those voters that the Green Party is picking up. Now, when Gary Johnson took 1% of the vote share away from Mitt Romney in 2012, if you believe that third-party candidates can take votes away from anyone, well, I didn't hear any Republican complaining about Gary Johnson. In fact, nobody even knew who the hell he was. In fact, in 2016, Gary Johnson actually took more votes away from Donald Trump than Jill Stein took from Hillary Clinton. And Donald Trump also had Evan McMullen running in Utah specifically to prevent him from winning in that state just to swing the election. Yet, Republicans didn't complain. But for some reason, in the Democratic Party, who's supposed to support democracy, small-d democracy, we always hear them complaining about third-party candidates. It's not just Jill Stein. I mean, Ralph Nader is another example. In 2000, he's always cited as the main reason why Bush won. But Gore was a very boring, uninspired candidate. See, if you don't actually start inspiring your own base, then you will not win. You can't blame anyone else for spoiling the election because you're spoiling it for yourselves, Democrats. The fact is that punishing the Green Party and discouraging more people to not vote third party, it's not going to help Democrats win. If they want to win, they have to stop sucking and actually be liberal because when the base is inspired and excited, people turn out to vote and Democrats win. So I don't believe that Jill Stein colluded with Russia. In fact, if she did, then she's probably the worst colluder in the history of the country. And look, hey, if I'm wrong, I'll admit it. But this is probably about what I think it's about. Punishing third parties. Both parties in this country, they have a vested interest in making sure that Americans do not vote for third party candidates. Republicans do and Democrats do as well. It's just that Democrats are more vocal in their opposition to third parties. And I get it. Look, we don't want to spoil elections when we have a rogue Republican party who is proto-fascist at this point, winning, right? So we want to do everything we can to stop them from winning. But the fact of the matter is that Democrats only win if they can get their base to turn out. And to do that, you have to stop sucking. You can't blame third-party candidates. Now, I don't want to relitigate the 2016 election because you all know, if you've watched this channel, I've done that a bajillion times already, and I'm sick of it. I want to move on from 2016. I'm so tired of 2016. But we can't move on if 
the political establishment in this country is dragging us backwards. We have to make sure that we move forward. But things like this, you know, looping Jill Stein in the investigation, I mean, I don't I don't personally care that she's being investigated because I'm confident that she'll come out of this clean. But it is frustrating that I don't necessarily think they're investigating her because they're concerned with co collusion. I think they're probably investigating her because they want to discourage third-party candidates from, from running. They want to discourage people from voting third-party. And that, to me, is just immoral. Hey everyone, I am here with Ron Placone, who is a co-host on The Jimmy Dore Show, Establishment Exiles, and Five Chords in the Truth, and he is here to uh, bring in the new year. Is it ringing or bring in? I, I think it's ring. I think it is I, I could be wrong. I was yeah, going to say ringing, but then I questioned it. It's like, like it's like you're you're calling the, the year, and you're like, hey, are we doing this? And the year's <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. And then, and then that's how the year goes. <laughs> totally, totally. So we'll say ring in, but if we are wrong, then feel free to roast us or roast me specifically in the comment section. Um, and we just, you know, heads up, we just recorded a really wonderful, you know, um, show. It was what, like 48 minutes long. And the whole time I did not have my audio turned on. Um, so yeah, this is our second it's, attempt. A, it's, it's a case of the Mondays, man. You just got, you just got off the holiday recess and you're like, ah, yeah, yeah. It's like getting back on the bike, you know? Getting back into the swing of things is really difficult. And, you know, I'm complaining when my job is to talk. But, hell, you know, it, it, it is difficult sometimes, especially when you are operating technology that you don't understand or know how to use. So, for me, I'm not good with the computer, you know? Um, yeah. I've got to get my... You and I both. You yeah. and I both. <laughs> I've got to get my grandson to help me out with it, maybe. <laughs> No, I'm not. A, I'm not a grandfather. I'm just. I'm just waiting for the day where the budget, uh, where the budget can fit in an assistant. That's the day I'm waiting where for. Where somebody just does it for me, and I don't have to worry yeah. about it because I don't know what I'm doing. So, <laughs> what the purpose of this chat was? Ron and I wanted to get together to kind of talk about, you know, or briefly reflect on 2017, and also ring in 2018 the right way. Um, and so, of course, after we were finished recording, after I was finished recording, you know, for the end of 2017, I had a lot of videos auto post um, each day to my channel. Um, but there was a lot of things that happened after we turned off the cameras that we didn't get a chance to address. So, of course, Erica Garner passed away. She was Eric Garner's daughter, as you all know. Um, and this was really, really difficult for a lot of us. Um, and it's still very difficult because she is an individual that's just invaluable to our movement. I don't think we can ever overstate how much she meant to us and how important her voice was um, to this progressive cause and to the cause of criminal justice reform in the U.S. Um, so, of course, we we can't not start the video off by, you know, mentioning her and acknowledging her. And also, another thing that happened that was pretty crazy was that... Um, Throughout the course of winter break, the news outlet The Wrap published an article about Cenk Uygur basically unearthing some old blog posts that he wrote back in 1999, 2000, and they were sexist and chauvinistic, um, and they were despicable. Nobody can deny that. Nobody is denying that. But that prompted Justice Democrats to then ask for his resignation, and he did resign, and then Kyle Kalinske resigned as well. So I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that, Ron. And uh, sure, because yeah, I, uh, I don't agree with their decision to ask for his resignation because I do think people are capable of changing. Yeah. Oh, so well, I'll start with the first thing and then move on to the second. So Erica Garner, um, yeah, I mean that was 
That was heavy. And, you know, there's that old phrase. It's like some people, they they didn't have a lot of years to their life, unfortunately, but they had a lot of life in their years. Right. And, uh, you know, she was only 27 years old. She certainly had a ton of life in those years. Uh, I hope, I know she was working on a book. Uh, I really hope that somehow they're able to get that out there uh, for a number of reasons. I hope that, I mean, I I don't know. I I heard she was like three quarters of the way through, but but what that actually means, I I have no idea. Um, But I I hope somehow they can, uh, you know, finish that for her or, you know, somehow they're able to get that out there. Um, cause I think that'd be phenomenal. And yeah. it is very disturbing that the systemic disease in law enforcement still has not been addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think the movement is strong and I really have confidence that someday it will. Um, but you know, it's, we do live in this gross world where what happened to Eric Garner happened. And people openly mocked it. This is her father. People openly mocked his dying words. I can't breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were no consequences for those responsible for his death. Uh, and it's because we have a, a very systemic disease in law enforcement. It's because the way we we recruit, the way we train, the way we screen, it, it, it's very clearly broken beyond repair. And, you know, activism like hers was that that much more important because of this. And I hope that, you know, the movement continues to go and, and that hopefully we'll get a more long-term solution to prevent something like this, uh, like an Eric Garner, from happening again. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, we're, we're a long way off from that. Oh, but, yeah. uh, but, I, but I don't think it's impossible. Um, Cenk Uger. So... I did not read the blog posts. Me too. Uh, just to you know, put it out there, I, I didn't read them. Uh, but one thing I always knew about Jank, and this is years before I was part of Young Turks Network, years before I worked for Jimmy, uh, you know, before any of that stuff, when I was just uh, a kid in college that knew who the Young Turks were, um, that was always part of his story that he used to be some die-hard, pro-war, right-wing Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not saying that just because you're a Republican, that gives you a, you know, a pass to be sexist. That's not what I'm <laughs> implying at all. Right. But, but what I am implying is that you know, people evolve and people change. And this is a guy that uh, is very clear that he had an evolution um, at, a, at a later, not, not necessarily a later stage of his life, but as an adult. Mm-hmm. He had an evolution and in, in, in a personal kind of um, you know 180, and really saw things differently. And for him, the pivotal moment was uh, 9/11, and uh, you know because he was like, "What the hell are you doing? Saddam didn't do this. Iraq's not responsible here. What are you doing?" Um, and I can relate to that because for me, you know, I was kind of an apathetic teenager until uh, you know around 2003 or so. Um, you know, and it's not like I wasn't paying attention to politics at all, but I was not paying very much attention. Um, you know, I kind of just didn't really care. And, um, then all of a sudden people that I knew and family members were going off to Iraq to fight this war. And I didn't know why the hell we were there. Uh, and I woke up and I started becoming way more politically engaged, and I started to really despise the Bush administration. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, so it's like people evolve, and they have personal evolutions at, at all kinds of ages and all kinds of stages in life. And 
everybody always knew that he had one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying that that, you know, that that means that, oh, a conservative person, they're allowed to be sexist. We expect that. <laughs> what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is, is this part of his evolution. And when you're kind of uh, stigmatizing a person by by kind of being like, oh, well, look at this. You you have to face consequences now. Um, you know, you're almost kind of having this underlying message of, well, you can't change. Right. And. I don't think that's a good message to have towards humanity. No. I think that people can change and they can evolve. Uh, and I think in the case of Justice Democrats, I, I mean, you know, they have a very long road ahead of them. Mm-hmm. This is not, I mean, the DNC, they don't want these progressives involved. That's why, you know, I mean, we did a video over on the Jimmy Dore show of, of these new rules that they came out with. Where it's like you're, they they basically try to discourage any type of primarying. The people that still have the power in the Democratic Party, the establishment, uh, corporate apologists. Which, by the way, this one my New Year's resolution. I no longer use the word corporate Democrats because I feel like if you use the word corporate Democrats, you're making it seem like that's an option. Mm. And I don't think you can be corporate and be a Democrat. You're one or the other. You're not both. Right. So and I'm not going to use that anymore. I'm also not going to use the term neoliberal because a lot of people uh, in the contemporary United States, a lot of people think that just means new liberal. Uh, you yeah. and I both know that's not what it means. The neoliberal refers to the market, so it actually refers to deregulation mm-hmm. uh, as it exists as a term. But I think sometimes that gets, gets confused, especially since the neoliberal term can be put on a lot of Democrats. Um, so I'm trying to not use that phrase and in, uh, in describing folks as well. So I use the word corporate politics, or excuse me, corporate apologist, or Starbucks conservative. Ah, so <laughs> I like that. That's what I'm using going forward. So the corporate apologists, they really do not want. Um, they they really don't want that change. I mean, they've already screwed the Justice Democrats out of um, out of uh, data that they're entitled to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's already happening. So to kind of, um, you know, get rid of several big figureheads that could really help, like a Jank Uger and a Kyle Kalinske, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if that's the smartest move in the world. Yeah, it's uh, like shooting yourself I, I in the foot. I think it's safe to say it's not. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, and, and I think you and I are totally on the same page with this because, uh, you know, we, we did a recording several minutes ago where it was clear we were. But uh, <laughs> we, we see into the future, Ron. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> or the past. Uh, you know, I'm for I'm for causes and policy positions more than I am for whatever lane you're participating in to try to get elected. Absolutely. You know, I mean, so whether you're a justice Democrat and that's something important to take away. You know, maybe you are really discouraged by what the justice Democrats are doing, and that's understandable. Don't take that out on some of the brilliant candidates that have yes. benefited from resources and you know because i you know i don't care whether you're a justice democrat whether you're an independent whether you're a green party whether you're a dsa if you're for the causes i'm for i can be for you and i can give you a vote if you're not well then i'm probably i'm not going to give you my vote i'm not going to give you my support it's that simple you know i mean look at someone like a sam ronan he's going uh, uh, totally he's infiltrating the republican party yeah uh you know so and i think that's an important thing to take forward with our movement in 2018 mm-hmm. that you know we are a movement of causes we are a movement of of social change and a a kind of in the thought sense revolution right you know a revolution in the economic and thought sense 
is what we're going after. And and you don't accomplish something like that just by showing up at a ballot box. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's part of it, sure. But but that's not that's not all there is. Right. Uh, or do you get to that point by just saying that the status quo is okay? Um, you know, we didn't get. We didn't get the EPA because uh, a Democrat waved a magic wand and said it was okay. We got the EPA because environmentalists uh, demanded it and the social movement demanded it. Now, the EPA is kind of in really bad shape right now. Right. Different story for a different day. But, but, you know, you get the principle. And another soundboard is going. <laughs> we're going to lose all four before we're done. The goal is that all four will fall. I kind of want them all to fall. <laughs> I, I feel like it's the only... You know what? Like, we'll end it with, like, me slamming, and then they'll all fall. And then I'll be like, all right, support independent media. You know what? Do you want to fix this problem? Patreon.com slash Ron Placone. You can fix this. That is perfect. And as your, as your soundboard is falling off, my dog is wrestling with my cat right by me. So, you know, this is this is what independent media is about. This is... We do here. This is the glory of it. No, but um, I think that you made a really crucial point about basically not demonizing the candidates for the actions of the organization as a whole. Because I've personally, like I won't name names, but I've had Justice Democrats reach out to me saying that they're so frustrated with the situation and they disagree with the decision that Justice Democrats made in asking for Jenks' resignation. So I think that that's really important. These are candidates that aren't just Justice Democrats. They're running in in conjunction with brand new Congress. They're endorsed by our revolution. These are people, and you can't just attach that organization to their names and demonize them in the event you do disagree with the organization, um, which I think is important. Now, getting back to the um, the topic of evolving and changing, what I'm worried about in basically not accepting people when they change, not taking yes for an answer, you just lost another one, um, in not accepting change... I feel like you're discouraging people who have said things that they were embarrassing about, embarrassed about from speaking out. So, I mean, if we all have things that we're embarrassed about. I, I've done things that make me cringe. I've watched the home videos with, you know, seeing myself with uh, frosted tips. You know, we all change as people. We all evolve. And look, here, this is why I think that people changing is really important. So when I came out to my dad about seven years ago, you know, he said, well, I still love you and accept you, but I disagree with this. I don't ever want to hear or see anything about this. I don't want to ever, you know, see you bring a guy to the house. That's just wrong in my opinion. Um, And that was seven years ago. But just this last Christmas, when we left for Christmas dinner, he gave my husband a hug, gave him a kiss on the cheek and said he loves him. So people can change, you know, and if if you hold that against someone, and say, well, you, you're you a bad person because of what you said in the past, even if you're a completely different person now. I don't think that's very progressive. I think that's regressive. I think that you have to understand that in the process of trying to change hearts and minds, we don't discourage people. Because, yeah, people, you know, if, if you're... If you have really disgusting views and you're able to reform those views, then that's good. That's something we should celebrate. Yeah. And not demonize people who, you know, uh, who do change and come on the right side of the issue. So I do think that that is something that has to be said. And another thing that really bothered me, which I think is dangerous, honestly, is that there were some journalists online, I won't name names, um, who were suggesting that Jenk still holds these views and still might be sexist because he interviewed a porn star, for example. But that I mean, we're really getting to the point where, like, as Benjamin Dixon states it, we're going to start purifying ourselves into oblivion. And I'm not talking about purity tests in the sense that neoliberals say, oh, well, you want all these policies. I'm talking about basically holding each person up to a moral test and saying they don't they don't 
align with what I think is right, morally speaking. So if you say, oh, well, this person watches porn, so they're sexist. Well, congratulations, you just alienated 99.9% of the American population. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw that, too, what you're referring to, and, and I was very confused by it. Yeah. My response was, what's your, what's your point? I, I mean, Mine you too. know, the Young Turks have always done pop culture type stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, they've always done cultural stuff. They have a channel dedicated to interviews. Yeah. So, I mean, what what's your point? Are are you saying that just because somebody works in pornography, they don't deserve to be interviewed? They don't deserve a voice? Yeah. Uh, that's not that's not progressive at all. By the way, that that is very not. That's the opposite of progressive. That's right. actually the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, it's that, we're getting into you know, evangelical I mean, territory, right? Yeah, right. I mean, you totally are. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, that's so. Yeah, I mean, my my response to that when I saw it was, I was like, "What? What's your? What are you talking about? So what? Yeah. You know, you know, I, I mean, uh, that's absolutely ridiculous. Like, like that was just, uh, yeah. And I, I didn't understand that. You know, like I just right. didn't understand why that was a point one way or another now mm -hmm. i mean i mean if he was if he was having this thing where it was supposed to be just a regular tyt news and politics show and he has this howard stern moment where he's just like hang on hang on describe your boobs and he has like yeah. porn stars there for no reason uh and and then that's different then it's like I, I don't know what you're doing but you just turn this into a morning zoo or whatever uh but no it was an interview like 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 just because of what somebody does you're saying that they are, they are aren't worth an interview i mean that's yeah i i was confused by that point I right guess. and ju just for argument's sake the argument that people who think jenk is sexist or anyone who watches porn is sexist what they said was well if if you support this if you talk about porn you're propping up an industry that exploits women that you know they women they begrudgingly join the porn industry because they can't make it but, I mean, if we're really going to demonize already, people... Uh, yeah, well, think about this. I, I buy, if, I, if I buy a shirt from Walmart for five bucks, you know, it's cheap because they imported it from a country that doesn't have any, you know, labor standards or anything like that. So every single industry is exploitative. You know, when, when you live in a country that is as capitalist as ours is, it, you know, you, you have to change the system. You can't demonize individuals. And as progressives, you have to be... I mean, I think part of being progressive is being sex positive and saying that as right. long as consenting adults are consenting, then it's perfectly fine. So it's basically, yes. getting getting back to the point, in demonizing Jang and suggesting that he is not progressive because he interviewed a porn star or um, you know he talks about porn every now and then, I think that that is bad for the movement because you're getting away from policy and you're getting yeah. into personality when we want people on our side who agree with us politically. Well, and, and to blanket an entire industry, I mean, you know, you're, you're kind of also treading on a slippery slope. I mean, I mean, there are there are some institutions in the porn industry that that were kind of self-started by the, the folks involved themselves kind mm -hmm. of, you know, so. So to cast that blanket over an entire industry and then say, well, everyone there is uh, doesn't want to be there and they're all being exploited and this and that, I mean, you, you can't make a statement like that. That's yeah. way too broad of a brushstroke, way too broad of a generalization. And, and you know, I, I think if, if that's something people want to do and they're all consenting adults, like you said, um, yeah, that that's 
that's perfectly fine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, the whole thing of we're now going to kind of wag our fingers at, at anybody, you know, in, involved in, in, in the pornography industry, yeah, I mean, that, that, that really just totally dilutes the conversation. It's kind of like, what the hell are you talking about? This is what the religious right used to do. Exactly. Still does. Still does, but yeah. used to do it way more. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and the point is not to, like, you know, we don't, we're not trying to get dragged down into the weeds of things. Um, mm. Or, you know, we, we, we basically, the goal here is to win. And you don't win when you basically tell someone that, they need to resign from your movement when they have a viewer base of 3 million people who is the marketing wing of your organization. So, you know, the overall point, again, is not to demonize the candidates for the sins of the organization, but just as Democrats, as an organization, they need to come together and really understand that if they really want to win, they have to make some changes publicly. And they need to make sure that they're not alienating people unnecessarily and making hasty decisions that in the end hurt not just themselves, but the candidates. I mean, I don't want this to hurt the candidates, but some people may be turned off to anyone who's just a justice Democrat, which is not, you know, I hope that that's not the case. Because again, yeah. great candidates. I, I watched an interview that Jimmy Dore did with Alison Hartson. I was mm -hmm. blown away. She was amazing. You know, yeah, she's, um, she's a very yeah, and, and she's an educator, and mm -hmm. she is is very intelligent. She's very charismatic. She lays it out the right way. She is um, she's exactly what California needs. Yeah, she and, she's the uh, exact progressive that we need in this country to get elected to the Senate. You know, because mm -hmm. she'd be fighting for everyone. But I don't I don't want to focus on just the negative things for 2017. I think that the overall point in me and Ron coming together here is to. Um, basically talk about the path forward for progressives in 2018 and you know i think that there are reasons to be optimistic you were talking about this in our now um deleted interview <laughs> the episode that never was and, and it was so good a little guys. episode that could it was so a good little. too i think personally even if 2017 overall politically was bad a lot of the negative things that happened the things that trump did the repeal of net neutrality these can all be undone they can be overturned and i think that we have to look at the big picture right oh, yeah. we need to see that you know even if on a month basis or year by year basis things seem bad we're getting back to the point i think of this collective class consciousness like we saw back in the new deal era where people are coming together and it doesn't matter what their party affiliation is but they like uh one example you brought up before was bernie sanders did a town hall um with a room full of trump supporters in west virginia i mean that's a sign that our society is changing you know yeah. and it didn't happen with obama some people thought it would happen with trump um it didn't so i think we're getting to that point where the floodgates are going to burst open and we're going to see a new wave of progressivism so no i think that there's reasons to be optimistic in spite of basically 2017 ending in a really shitty way what do you think no i'm i'm totally with you i, I mean obama you know in a in a country as racist as the united states of america is a black guy with a Muslim name won in a landslide when he ran on a progressive platform. Right. And for eight years, he didn't deliver on that progressive platform. So then a guy came along. Man, they're, they're kind of disenfranchised with the Democrats now. This guy comes along uh, who is uh, kind of a crazy talker. It's just kind of a weird, bizarre guy. Promises this thing called Republican populism. Well, the Democrats didn't give us populism, so maybe the Republicans will. Well, guess what? That's an oxymoron in and of itself, Republican populism. Yeah. So that was a snake oil lie 
that Donald Trump sold. And now people are realizing, okay, that's not going to happen. This guy is just looking out for the corporatocracy too. People are hungry for someone that's not going to look out for the corporatocracy, but instead is going to look out for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think for progressives to move forward, we need to understand we are a movement of um, we're a movement of social change and social movements. We're a movement of causes. We're a movement of Medicare for all. We're a movement of living wages. We're a movement of free college. We're a movement of ending the wars, of ending the military-industrial complex, of investing in infrastructure. Uh, we're a movement of a free and open internet. Uh, that's what we're all about. We're not about the letter next to your name. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not about you know like maintaining any type of status quo because we realize that the status quo is broken. Right. So we don't have an allegiance to the DNC. We don't have an allegiance to the GOP, obviously. Yeah. We don't have an allegiance to any of that stuff. We have an allegiance to the causes that we know will put this country in a better direction. So, you know, we just got to stick to that. Yeah, it's and it's going to happen. You know, we're building a new status quo that's inclusive, mm -hmm. you know, and that will actually affect change. So, uh, Ron, before we go, can you just tell everybody where to find you online? Yes, yes. You can find me at www.bestsoundboardplacinginintheworld.com. It lasted. <laughs> we got one. One out of four ain't bad. Uh, so, uh, no, you can find me. Uh, follow me on Twitter at ronplacone. Ronplacone.com is my website. Uh, my podcast is called Five Chords and the Truth, the number Five Chords and the Truth. And, of course, you can catch me over on the Establishment Exiles and the Jimmy Dore Show. All right. Well, you guys, uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, I wish you could have seen our older chat as well. But, hey, you know, um, it is what it is. So um, <laughs> we'll catch you guys later. Well, that's all I got for you guys this week. Thank you so much to my guest, Ron Placone, for stopping by the show again. And also thank you to all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys are truly amazing. And um, again, I'm, I'm never not amazed by how generous you guys are. And as promised, I'm going to now read off all of the names of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors. So this week we have Abir Purohit, Aldo Valles, Anastasia Benson, Array Barali, Ashley Lobsinger, Captain B-Man, Carl Anderson, Carlos Estevez, Christopher Lampa, Colin Packer, David Sterez, David Wells, Dylan Carr, Don Wood, Eric D. Hitchings, Full Name, James D.G., Janet Cruzen, Jerry Bevers, John Abbott, Julio Rodriguez, Kenneth First, Larry Coltrane, Liliana Flores, Lim T.T., Major Tom, Matt McRell, Michael McGregory, or Michael Gregory, excuse me, Nico Garza, Pauline Salati, Pi Disliker, Ronald Bendixson, Rosemary Saragino, Royal Wee, Sam Batesh, S.C. Nelson, Sophia Aid Abdedame, Splat Blaster 99, Tahira Barney, Tossin Ajiktu, Trayvon Henson, Voltaire's Bong, When Losing a Loved One. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. I am incredibly sorry if I butchered your name. Uh, most likely I did, but again, my name is Figueredo. It happens to me, so I absolutely feel your pain. Um, so anyways, thank you all so much. I hope you enjoyed the show. It feels so good to be back in 2018. This is going to be hopefully a big year for the Humanist Report. Um, that's all I'll say. So I'll see you guys next week. Take care. <laughs>